Welcome to episode number 237 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Ryan, and with me today, we have Michael, Jill, and Noah. And on this week's Destination Linux, we're discussing the most underrated distros in Linux. Then we're going to cover the amazingly awesome and fully repairable framework laptop. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. So we're now in August, which means the DLN MegaFest is almost here. Mark your calendars for Sunday, August 22nd, because at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, or 1900 UTC, we're going to be celebrating 30 years of Linux with a MegaFest. Previously, we've done LugFest and GameFest, where the DLN community gets together to hang out and talk Linux or open source, and the GameFest, where we all compete for the most coveted prize of them all, the Almost Good at Gaming Award. But this time, we're combining the LugFest and the GameFest to make the first ever DLN MegaFest, so join us on August 22nd so to jump in and geek out on Linux. In our community feedback this week, Liam writes us to say, Dear DLN team, been listening to you guys through my favorite podcast app, Pocket Cast, for almost a year now. In a recent episode, Ryan raved about Garuda Linux. Having been a Mint guy for five years, I tried Garuda out on my Intel NUC and loved it. As I'm writing this email, I'm preparing for a full format and install of my daily driver, which is used primarily for Java development with Garuda. And that's the beauty of having everything in the cloud, apart from the handful of apps, everything runs from the browser, so this should take me only about two hours before I'm back where I started, on a new, sexy, modern, steampunk-ish UI with definite performance (laughs) benefits. Love your show. Love the honesty and candidness. All the best from a freezing uh, negative 7 degrees Celsius from South Africa, Liam. Thanks so much much for your email, Liam. And also there's a saying in the U.S., which is uh, stay frosty, which might be uh, automatic with a negative 7 degrees Celsius. Anyway, Ryan, (laughs) how would you rate your experience with trying out Garuda Linux? I've really loved my time with Garuda Linux. You know, it was me. I reached out to the developer uh, a few weeks back to get them on the show because I was just so excited about what they were doing with it. I really like the idea that we have a distribution that is focused on being tailored towards running the absolute max for your machine, the max performance that you can pull out of your machine, utilizing the Zen kernel, doing tweaks in there, Because it's very important to me that the message gets out there, or has been for a while, and I think it's out there now, uh, but it wasn't three years ago for sure, that Linux can run extraordinarily fast. It can run games better than Windows. Really, the only barrier that it's ever had was those games porting to Linux. And Garuda is kind of a sign of when you go and you get the latest hardware, you build this beast of a machine, and you want to see what it can really do. You want to put some benchmarks out there. They get uploaded into the cloud through the popular benchmark service services that absolutely dominate everybody that has a, a Windows machine on there. You're going to want to run something like a Garuda on there because it just pulls those last every ounce of performance you can out of it. And additionally, because it's a rolling release, you're going to get all the hardware enablement pieces built into it, too. So for like the 6700 XT that I just got, there were distros that were not working uh, right away with this brand new video card. But when you get in something like an Arch or a rolling distro, they have that hardware enablement. You put it in, you run it, everything works fine, and you can start gaming right away. Gruda is a really fun distribution. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And I love getting feedback and community emails from all across the world. It's so awesome 
to see the different countries and things represented here. So thank you so much for sending that out to us. We love hearing from our worldwide community. In fact, what we want you to do is get your official DLN mug. We want you to fill it with some coffee or bubbly. Sit down at your nearest stool and send an email to commentsdestinationlinux.org. If you want to join in on the community discussion, then join the DLN community forum by going to dlnform.com. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service. With a fully managed database as a service, MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable and performing apps and less on maintaining the database itself. You simply offload the MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them do all the provisioning, managing, scaling, updates, backups, and security of your clusters. DigitalOcean built into their service with a partnership with MongoDB. And so together, they've ensured that you're going to have access to the latest resources of MongoDB document databases. They become available. Now, as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, it's even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. That's do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. Again, do.co slash DLN dash Mongo to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB. And a huge thanks for DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. So in our main topic this week, before we get started, I really wanted to go around the room and ask the hosts here, what your opinion is on what is the most underrated Linux distro out there? So I'll start with you, Michael. In your opinion, when you look at the whole world of distros, what is that one distro or two or three distros that you think about? Why is this thing not more popular than it is? Well, for a long time, I thought that Fedora would be in that list, and, and it's it's kind of getting a lot more traction recently, but so I'd still put in there a little bit, but also uh, OpenSUSE is a very underrated distro, in my opinion, as well as Rebecca Black OS. And oh, uh, what? <laughs> well, okay, partly that's a joke, and the other part is that it's genuine. Like, it's the distribution is made to have like experimental testing with Wayland, so it mm-hmm. sounds like just a, a joke distribution, but it does have some value there. So, in a, in a way, it's kind of unre- un- un- underrated, but I so mean, you're saying we should mm-hmm. all start giving Rebecca Black Linux a, a go. I mean, if the- you want to test the experimental stuff with Wayland, I mean, it's probably something to check out. But Fedora and OpenSUSE are the more logical choices for the person who wants the regular type of distribution. Right. I think Fedora is an interesting one in there because a year or two ago, I would have agreed that it's a underrated, underrepresented distribution in the Linux community. Uh, nowadays, I think it's definitely grown tremendously in popularity. And a lot of that, I feel like, is because of the great work they're doing in the community. Mm-hmm. The community's doing a better For job sure. getting out there into the other Linux and open source communities talking about it. Jill, what is your mm-hmm. thought on the most underrated distributions in Linux? Well, one of mine is Slackware, because it was the original Linux distro, and it's the one I started on. And Slackware. I like building packages. It's it's okay. Well, <laughs> it that makes really... one of us. It's actually really good for uh, users who want to get more advanced uh, yeah. to start using Slackware. And then as well as OpenSUSE, definitely. Uh, yeah. They just, they they haven't been getting the love from the community they need to get. And Noah, what are your thoughts on distros that you hear about and you think this thing should be way more popular than it is? 
So I'll, I would start with Manjaro. So Manjaro is an open source Linux mm. distribution based Good on one. Arch. Ryan, perhaps you've heard of this. It's an operating system uh, that's <laughs> designed, but it's designed with user friendliness and accessibility. And so it, when you start with Arch, everybody should use Arch or install it one time to get <laughs> into the habit of understanding how to build an operating system I from scratch. Wow, and Ryan, how are, how are you doing such a great Noah impression? And hey, then you should never it. do that again. You should move on to something that allows you to to actually get the operating, to, to skate to the end goal, right? It's like writing HTML by hand. You should know how to do it one time so you understand right. what it is, and then you should never do that by hand. Manjaro, I kind of look at the same way, right? It's it's an easy way to get up and running. And one of the things that I've noticed about Manjaro in specific is that it really allows you to dig into a wide variety of scenarios. And so if you look at the new mobile devices that are coming out and right. where all of the development's happening. A lot of that's happening on Manjaro. So that's one on my list. Second on my list is Pop! OS. Now, Pop! OS is a distribution that I actually really was very critical of when it first came out. It's designed by System76 when Canonical made the decision to move over to the GNOME desktop then System76 said, well, if you're going to do that, well, I guess we have no choice but to move over to the GNOME desktop, but we're going to take this opportunity to set ourselves apart. And what System76 has done very well is they've come out and said, okay, we are going to marry the operating system to our user's experience because our, our company is based on manufacturing these devices and delivering the best possible desktop Linux experience to our customers. And if we don't, either we don't have confidence that Canonical is able to do that, or we just have better insight into what our day-to-day -day users are doing, we want to have some control and some ability to, to, to reflect that. And, and the changes that we've seen that have come out of Pop! OS stand out for people that are doing development work and have specific workflows that System76 system understand because A, they're using it in-house in their own environment, and B, they're hearing from those users, and those users are coming to purchase hardware from them. And so all of that creates a really cohesive, very excellent operating system based on Ubuntu. So you get the same software packages that you would get if you were using stock Ubuntu, but a tailored desktop environment for the user experience that is functioning, living, eating, and breathing on Linux as a desktop. And that's Pop! Yeah. OS. So those are all interesting choices. Manjaro, I saw some comments from folks saying, do you think Manjaro is actually underrated? It has gained in popularity, but I kind of agree with you, Noah, that it could be way more popular than it is for all the work that they're doing on the side with a lot of manufacturers. There's a lot of laptops that they're working with. They, they really are working on being that distribution for the desktop space uh, in the arch world, that is. Mm. But one distro that made everybody's list, except Noah, so all three of us, was OpenSUSE. Certainly, there's some awesome stuff going on in OpenSUSE. And I wanted to deep dive this distro specifically, because in doing our prep this week, I knew that all three of us had mentioned OpenSUSE as something we felt should be bigger than it is. And I've spent all week playing with it which makes it even more interesting. The more I played with it, the more I kept scratching my head at this question of why is this not something we hear about uh, all over the place all the time? And, and I'll give my story in a minute, but I feel like we wouldn't do justice to this unless we brought Nathan from Deal and Extend on. So Nathan, get on here. Come join us for this discussion, man. So Nathan, welcome to the show. We are so happy to have you here because if we're going to talk about OpenSUSE, we've got to have you on, being that you have this... Uh, unhealthy obsession. Oh, almost, almost. unhealthy <laughs> right, obsession yes. with OpenSUSE. Um, so I guess let's start here. When you think about OpenSUSE in the community, you've been a huge fan proponent of this distro for a long time. When you hear some of us mention that it's underrepresented, do you agree with that? Or do you think OpenSUSE gets the credit that it deserves? 
So what's funny is uh, I lived in a open SUSE bubble for probably five, six years before I realized it was underrated. Uh, so so I, I learned like about 2015, 16 timeframe when I started getting into listening to podcasts, like, huh, there's really not a whole lot here on an open SUSE. I wonder why that is. And the more I dug, well, maybe it's just a regional thing. Like I, I, didn't, I didn't think about that before. You know, now that I've grown and matured, uh, I've brought in my Linux uh, community, you, you know, right. to to other areas. I do think it does. There is a lack of conversation about it, and and actually, that's largely the reason why I started. I, I don't like the term blogging, but blathering on the internet about <laughs> my experiences of OpenSUSE because like, so there's there's like a, a lack of resources out there. I, I really actually started to sort of discover that maybe a little bit beforehand. Um, so being in the military, they use smart cards for accessing. Uh, DOD protected sites, right? And um, there was basically nothing out there that I really cared for. Like, like the instructions were spotty at best. They weren't a lot of assumptions were out there. So I basically I wrote uh, it's like 2013, I believe, on the OpenSUSE wiki, um, setting up the DOD common access card for OpenSUSE, and I did it step by step instructions because there was nothing like I had to get little bits from here, little bits from there, and nothing was really cohesive. And that's actually what really started me down the the journey of maybe actually contributing to some level in documentation. And that's also, as I went on, I saw there's a real lack of, you know, like on Reddit, uh, that there really wasn't a whole lot of discussion there. And so then, yes, I think that OpenSUSE tends to be underrated. And I actually have asked myself that question for, for quite some time. I think it's partially a cultural thing because you know, OpenSUSE is more as a German-centric right. distribution. And, and they don't do a good job of bragging about what they do. Yep. Yeah, especially mm -hmm. when you look at all the things that OpenSUSE has done, and we've, we've talked about some of them kind of in passing, right, of the build services and things like that that are incredibly useful, not only for OpenSUSE, but other distros as well. Um, but like you, I had, a, I had a very interesting experience because I guess it's about five years ago now when I started my Linux journey. And I tell people that, you know, when I was using, when I started the Linux journey, I was using Ubuntu and a bunch of people were like, oh, you got to try this distro. You got to try that distro. And there was Arch, there was Ubuntu, there was Debian, there was all these spins and forks and different things everybody wanted me to try. But I honestly don't think OpenSUSE ever came up, like ever, as a recommendation from people in the community. So I thought back on that and I was like, that's kind of interesting. Like, why? And this week especially since it's a rolling, you know, Tumbleweed has a rolling edition as well, which is so much in the, the realm of things that I'm interested in with the type of hardware I run. And I had got the brand new 6700 XT and this week, obviously I want to spend a lot of time with OpenSUSE to really understand it and to see what might be missing in it or what, what might be issues that people are picking up on or that don't make it something that you want to really excitedly talk about, maybe like a, a more popular uh, distro out there. And man, it ran the 6700 XT perfectly, which means it had the hardware enablement stacks built right in, right, right out of the box. I also put it on the HP Omens, which we know had some issues with the particular distros that could run that, that could enable the hardware in there. Had a lot of distros fail in that. It ran on those perfectly with no issues. So they do a lot of great work, but again, wasn't something that a lot of people uh, recommended out there or continue to recommend. And I think there's some ingredients and things as I spent this week with it that I felt like this could be part of the reason. And the first one I came up with, Nathan, and I want to get your opinion on this, is the installer itself. Now, there's nothing wrong with the installer. It works. It will get the job done. But it's also not very intuitive. 
So for instance, I'll give you an example. When you go to network and you're going to choose your Wi-Fi card, it just lists your actual Wi-Fi hardware there. There's nothing that lists out your network automatically or does a search for SIDS or anything else. You have to pick your particular network hardware. So whether you're doing your ethernet or your Wi-Fi, then you have to go click edit. Then once you click edit, it brings you into a new screen. And over there on the far right, which you might not even see is a search network thing. So it will automatically scan for SIDS. And you mm -hmm. click that and then it'll pull the SIDS down and then it will finally connect. So there was things like that that I'm like, this doesn't require four steps. This should be one screen, one step. You've got everything right there like most other distros. What, what are your thoughts on the installer being one of the reasons or areas that OpenSUSE could improve to really get more popularity out there? I can't disagree. I think that the setting up the network connection from the installer is less than stellar. I won't. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I won't argue there. Now, I I, I do have to uh, say though, since since my computer life started in the '80s, I never actually thought of the installer as being difficult until I tried Ubuntu for the first time. And so then I am like, oh, now I see what people are saying. I largely always uh, just download the the big ISO because I'll, I'll do a lot of offline installations, like a bunch of machines at a time. And so that really wasn't an issue for me. And so like when people say, oh, I can't get the network working, I'm like, oh, why is that? Again, after using like some of the other distributions, how they just, you know, they download just enough essentially and then pull the updates in with, through the network all at install time. And that makes sense. But I think that's, a, that's one of those things where somebody who is new into Linux could come in, right? They're going through an installer. They're used to maybe installing through Calamari's using Manjaro or something. They're used to using Ubuntu, like used to Fedora, uh, going through those installers, which Fedora's is a little unique too. It's a different installer than, than Ubuntu. But with the OpenSUSE one go, you know, this is not giving me a great first impression, right? Because I don't even know how to select my card or that I was to go to edit. Because I, I got to be honest with you. I stared at that screen for a good 10 seconds. Like where, what am I supposed, what is it telling me? Like it can't find my Wi-Fi card or what? So I think some of those things can throw people off is what I'm yeah. getting at. And and there oh, was, sure. there has been a lot of distros that have spent a lot of time making sure that first experience is really clean and really good and really, and, and to them that was a worthwhile venture. So I'd love to see OpenSUSE fix that. Michael, what are your thoughts on this conversation? I mean, I think OpenSUSE is definitely one of those distributions that is underrated uh, in a lot of ways. And I do think that there are some pain points, like some, uh, you know, what's the paper cuts is the term. The, there's a few of those where the installer for the Wi-Fi is that kind of thing. And I've, I've never experienced that because I always have Ethernet when I'm installing OpenSUSE. So, but there's also tons of amazing stuff in OpenSUSE. And that's the the thing about OpenSUSE to me is the reason it's underrated is because of all of the cool stuff that it offers. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the open build service is fantastic. You can use it to build packages for OpenSUSE and every other distro like Debian, Ubuntu, Arch, and everything else, even like Fedora stuff. And you can use it to build app images even. So the open build service or OBS is an amazing piece of software. And the open QA system is another is, is actually kind of interesting because it's one of the reasons why the installer is awesome. So I know that there mm -hmm. are pain points for the installer for people, but the open QA system is built into the installer. So they have like an automated uh, testing system where it runs the install process and does all these different testing piece, uh, pieces in the back end and even records video of the entire process. And so you can watch and see where anything goes wrong and that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of cool stuff in OpenSUSE that is, you know, 
just very impressive. So I think it's underrated for those reasons. But I do think that there are things it could you know improve, such as the installer thing you mentioned. But also, I think they just kind of need to do some more polish on the the, the fi- like the last mile sort of thing. Like if if uh, OpenSUSE had a la- like a much more polished approach and better design, I think that it would be really the go-to distribution because it already has amazing engineering and infrastructure. I saw a lot of people shaking mm-hmm. their head yes when you said that, Michael. So when you talk about throwing polish on, what do you mean specifically? So there's the UI, UX experience, so like making the UX easier to use, such as in fixing the Wi-Fi problem in the interstellar, that would be part of that. But also the changing the UI, so making it look nicer, having better icons and that sort of stuff. It doesn't seem like they put much attention to that. Uh, and I think that that you know, first impressions are very important. I mean, in every facet of, of first impressions, you know, whether it's a meeting someone or whether you're just looking at some from software for the first time, I think it's a very important piece to consider. And I, I don't think that the SUSE or OpenSUSE team look at that as an important factor. You talking about even in the mm-hmm. desktop customizations that they do, for instance, they used to be a huge KDE contributor. Yes, they, they were and, for a and long they, time. But they stopped and they kind of, well, I don't want to say they stopped, but they scaled back on that and they're more Novell. focused on. That's why. Yeah, they were bought yeah. by Novell and Novell pulled them back on that a lot. So that they, you know, that's one of the reasons. They used to be considered one of the go-to yes. though. Like, hey, if you want the best KDE experience, you go to OpenSUSE yeah. back in the day, right? They had the best, impl- absolutely best implementation of KDE at the time. <laughs> so if we ask ourselves, what is OpenSUSE best implementation of a desktop environment on today? I'm a Plasma fan, so I would say their, their implementation of Plasma is probably the best. Although I really do like their, their implementation of XFCE. They put a lot of work mm-hmm. into that as well. It's like right out of the box, XFCE is really great. It's funny um, you say that because I think their XFCE implementation is absolutely fantastic. Really nice. But I really think you, you hit the nail on here about the fact that they're really not no. They're not today known for a specific desktop environment that you get that best experience out of. And maybe having that, because to me, Pop OS gives you the best GNOME experience out there, right? Uh, there, there are distros out there that could focus that attention, and that's one way I think they could gain some popularity. Noah, what are you thinking when you hear all of this? And you've been around a long time in the Linux community. OpenSUSE. What are some things they could do to kind of build themselves back up? Yeah, so I, uh, I, I guess I've not, sh- I haven't shared your experience, Ryan, to where I've not been recommended OpenSUSE. It seems like I actually hear that quite a lot. Um, it's that's Nate. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> both, Nate. Both, both, both of you guys, though. I mean, I, I, you, you yeah. said when you were getting into Linux that you didn't hear that a lot. I mean, aside mm-hmm. from Nate, though, I've heard that from a lot of people. Um, you know, OpenSUSE, Yas makes installing software super easy and configuring your system. And so it's kind of a system administrator's dream. The software availability is absolutely huge. And I've always appreciated that. Flatpaks work flawlessly. So that's really great. Past that, though, there's never been anything on OpenSUSE that draws me that some other distribution isn't offering. Um, And so that's kind of what's always kept me off of it. So what I would say is, which is what I would tell any organization that's looking to stand out, right, is come up with something that makes yours unique and different. And so the OBS really gets them there to a certain extent. I just haven't had a lo- lot of uh, need for that in specific um, because most of the stuff that I use are 
pretty pretty available tools anywhere. But that would be my recommendation is, and if that that is go back to the desktop environment and say, hey, we're just going to be the best KDE experiment, so be it. But find something, drill in on it and say, this is what we do better than the other. The other thing that, that might be of consideration, and I don't know how practical this is, if some stability could crop up around the, the parent organization, right? Seems like every few months or every few years, SUSE is being sold again, and it comes under new ownership. That's and, an interesting point. And, yeah. and so, so anyway, it's, it's one of those things, like if I'm going to a client, right, it almost entirely rules out using SUSE. Because if I sit down with them and they say, well, what does the longevity look like? Where have they been? It's like, well, the past few years, they're here. But then before that, they were there. And before that, they're there. Or you could use Red Hat over here, which is you know $34 billion company, been sold once, but has basically been a rock for the last 30 years. Kind of, t- kind of tips the scale. So um, those kinds of things, I, I think, are areas for growth for them. Well, yeah. I mean, the, this this yeah. being sold off multiple times is what is has probably not going to be the uh, an issue that's anymore because of the EQT buyout in a few years ago, and then moving it public because they've been making a lot of improvements and they've been making mm-hmm. a lot of waves. And I think there's a it's it's totally fine in my opinion for that case. But I also think that there's you know there's more than just OBS. There's also the OpenQA system, which is used even by mm-hmm. Fedora. It's a very popular infrastructure system. And then there's the OpenSUSE micro OS thing that is so cool to have like. Like the, cubic, yeah. yeah, they have the read-only file system approach with the micro OS, and it also runs on like mm-hmm. so many different types of architectures. You can put it on Raspberry Pi, you can put it on you know, insert whatever device you want. There's probably going to be support for it because there's a lot of them, uh, and there's also a lot of support for. A lot of people don't know this, but OpenSUSE is supported on tons of different hardware. Like you, yeah, the people think about Debian mm-hmm. being that that go-to for having every type of hardware. I think the architecture list of OpenSUSE might even be more than Debian. Uh, Risk Five, PowerPC, yeah. IBM Z, Linux One. I mean, yeah, it goes even P90X. <laughs> I mean, S390X. <laughs> P90X. Like, wait, what? I don't think that's the. Oh, yeah, that's the that's not the right one. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jill, what about you? What are your thoughts on OpenSUSE? Yeah. So. The biggest complaint I hear from um, my friends and the community is that the installer is actually slow. It's a beautiful installer. And honestly, I have gone to like SUSE expert days and some of the other, and they have said that they emulate the installer a lot after Microsoft's because they're trying to cater to the admins. That might be why- That's you know, not a great idea. It, it, yeah, it's just, but that's <laughs> that's what I've heard them talk about before. If, <laughs> if I may speak to that just uh, for quick, <laughs> when OpenSUSE builds the, the computer, they actually go ahead and, and, and like they do it package by package. Like I know Ubuntu has a different method where they actually just take the file system and expand it onto your hard drive or something yes. like that. They have a, yeah, I'm aware, and so this is yeah. more of a customized build. So like when you at install time, you can go ahead and choose all your bits and pieces, remove things right before install, and that's all that's installed, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. So mm-hmm. it's it's a more customized installation process. I actually personally yeah. like that. I like being able to go in and during the install choose my desktop environment and stuff instead of choosing you know initially. But you do get a much bigger ISO, like four point four gigabytes worth. Yeah. Of an ISO versus a, a much smaller one, so. But that was that's the big thing because you can you know spin up an Ubuntu install in under ten minutes. So mm-hmm. with OpenSUSE, it it takes longer. But like as you were saying, that's the beauty of it. That's also what I like about it is I can customize it, and I love Yast. I've been using it for years, and one of my favorite things about OpenSUSE was their SUSE Studio, 
where you can uh, spin up your own OpenSUSE or SUSE distro with applications that you, you need and use on a daily basis, basically customize your distro. When the SUSE Studio website started years ago, no one was doing that. They were way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And you know, I that goes to Noah yeah. saying, create that niche, right? Do yeah. something different, and they had something different. I mean, they've, they they yeah. still. Yeah. I mean, if you count Butterfest, they've had that for years. That's true. Way before anyone true. else, and exactly. they're also one of the main contributors to Butterfest as well. So I do think that Butterfest is itself one of the things that yep. separates OpenSUSE and SUSE in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that SUSE Studio. I, I wanted to come back. It's like Rip Sousa Studio because it was awesome. I, I know. Yeah, they, they keep saying they're going to merge it with Open Build Service. We haven't seen that full impl- implementation yet. But I actually still have my Sousa Studio distro I made installed on one of my Blade servers for rendering. And because with nice. uh, animation graphics, I didn't, I didn't have to have the, I don't have to have the latest and greatest to, um, you know, for it to render. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's the other thing. They create all these amazing tools, right? And they don't really advertise them well. Was yeah. that Nathan? That was your mm-hmm. point. Yeah, I said they don't they don't really brag enough about what they do. And yeah. there's another thing that a real neat feature like talking about Yast, but the whole auto Yast system I think is pretty mm-hmm. remarkable. Yeah. So you can you can build a, a basically a custom image from that as well or or custom configurations that you can then implement on multiple machines you know so if you if you have a specific let's say a purpose an appliance or, or whatever a deployment that's also a, a really cool thing to do that's one of the things i actually really like about open SUSE is the yast control center mm-hmm. so when we talk about individuals who want to be administrators who want to start doing training who want to understand linux or getting into it but that's their ultimate goal i feel like open SUSE gives a great foundation or kind of understanding the fundamentals through a single windowed GUI here, the YAS Control Center, because it's broken up so well from software, hardware system, network services, security, virtualization support, and miscellaneous. So, and then in here, like if I want to run a a hypervisor tool or I want to um, install KVM and, and start using that for virtual machines, all of that's built in and the GUI's done for you. You don't have to go and hunt it down or look for articles online. It's all organized. It's right there. Your security center, uh, opening, closing ports, opening and doing firewall things for different services you want running all through one area, user and group management all in one area. So it gives you, I feel like a really good foundation in system administration beginnings in one sweet little package here, the Yes Control Center. I, I think it's super well done, what they've done there. Oh, yeah. Yast is a very impressive tool. Uh, I do think that it's a little bit overwhelming for people who are not looking to be administrators because there's so much stuff. And my preference would be to make the, like a, a version of Yast that's easier for you know the, fir- the beginner desktop user and that sort of stuff. There are a lot of uh, great things in it, but it also is one of those things that needs a little bit of polish. Like visually speaking, it doesn't really appeal to me, but functionally speaking... It's amazing. And I think that's one of the things that is what's mm-hmm. OpenSUSE is missing is that uh, that factor. Functionally, engineering, infrastructure, all that sort of stuff, OpenSUSE is one of the most impressive distros, period. Great. And with the poli- if it had the polish on top of that, there would be no question that it'd be the go-to suggestion. Even the fact that 
you know, SUSE themselves mm. have a service where they do um, like a, a desktop support system where you pay a, an annual fee and you can call them up and get help with a desktop. If they had that plus the polish and the, and the engineering prowess, it would be like the best possible option to give anyone. It could be the, not only not underrated, it could be the best to ever Distro say. People. Yeah. Yeah. It really has the potential there, but I get what you're saying. Like, even though I really like the Yes Control Center, let's say you want to install a printer, you might have to go into the Yes Control Center, go set up a firewall, set up the right location for the firewall, let ports 161, 9100 through UDP and TCP, then do your search for your printer and then find it. And if you just go and click add printer, it's not going to prompt you that these are the things you need to do, right? It's not going to say, hey, do you want us to open these ports to do an additional search? Or it's just going to going to expect you know to go and do that stuff. And I thought, man, if I recommended this to a new user and they're like, hey, Ryan, I want to install my HP printer, it would be really difficult because even though in the print section as an example, it says, hey, do you want to run HP setup? I'm like, well, I got an HP printer. Sure. Click it. You don't have HP lip. Go find HP lip. I'm like, well, couldn't you just prompt there to say, do you want to install HP lip? And then we're, we're good to go. Like there's those additional touches they're missing to make it really fluid like they've really put the final finishing you know strokes on this distribution to make it what it could be and i I think that would take it from one where we're kind of some of us are questioning maybe it's not as popular as it could be Uh, i think it would take it to that whole new level where it's something all of us would recommend for somebody to utilize it's extraordinarily stable for a rolling release Mm -hmm. insanely stable like, Tumbleweed is so impressive. Like, unbelievable. Yeah, the I, update process is amazing. Even if you haven't updated a system after a few months, it's stable even after the updates. I, I have some <laughs> sysadmin, uh, let's say, lack of discipline in my sysadmin uh, duties in my own home. And Tumbleweed can basically tolerate my poor discipline as far as it, it can. It'll just be their tagline. We tolerate your poor decisions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've had like like my server, I, I run my server as a Tumbleweed machine. And people would say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Uh, well, I've been doing it now for a couple of years and <laughs> I update it maybe once a month, once every six weeks or so. I've never had yeah. any issues. I have uh, some netbooks I use for my kids uh, for doing like schoolwork. And pretty much from May to September, they're off. And then I just do an update and it's pretty much the back to baseline. And I, I haven't had any issues. And these are old garbage netbooks too. I mean, like like if they break them, no big deal. Wasn't there micro OS based on Tumbleweed? It's kind of a... Isn't it? It, it's kind of a hybrid them? situation. Yes. They, they use tumbleweed, the, the, the mm-hmm. some tumbleweed stuff, but there's uh, it, it's also it's, it's like a silver blue in, in how that works. Right. I think. Yeah, yeah it's very similar to silver blue. Yeah, and also, I mean, kind of tumbleweed is the basis for everything, even SLE. So the SUSE Linux Enterprise is uh, now pulling from tumbleweed and then doing that whole the integration of the the entire stack with. Uh, OpenSUSE is then pulled into Slee, and then that's created that creates Leap and all this other stuff. But the, we were talking about the, all the reasons why it's um, it's it is underrated. But I thought about something that happened this week. I covered it on Twill, but I wanted to talk about it here because it's just so interesting. So Noah talked about Pop OS earlier in one of his mm-hmm. uh, underrated distros, and I think that there's actually a tweet that was posted by one of the engineers at System76 of about Pop OS, but potentially making a rolling release version of pop os i know right and i thought that's that's really really interesting and please do that Mm -hmm. because that'd be very cool and i was thinking what would be the best possible base for that and i just kept going right back to OpenSUSE 
Imagine the design efforts and that 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 the polish of Pop oh OS gosh, on sitting dude. on top of OpenSUSE tumbleweed. It could be like yeah. a com a great great combination. Mm. Oh, for yeah. sure. That's an incredible idea. I want to use that like now. Yeah. That would be <laughs> exactly. amazing. Like Pop OS's design <laughs> capabilities with Tumbleweed's infrastructure would be insane mm -hmm. uh, for that. But did you see the popularity when they asked? I think the response he put after putting up that poll was, I guess the answer is yes. Because it was like <laughs> overwhelming, right, of people wanting uh, a rolling release with Pop! OS. And I think that's because mm. we've got a lot of people coming into the community now that are are doing things like design work and rendering and video editing and and working in development areas in which having the latest and greatest of the IDEs and things is becoming more and more important. And having a rolling release is something of interest to people. But really, when you think about a rolling release that's stable, that everybody can agree is stable. I mean, Tumbleweed is that one that's kind of the the it's, top. It's the only the, one that I'm comfortable with giving to anyone because when yeah. I, when someone says yeah. they want rolling release, I'm kind of like, well, why do you want rolling release, right? First of all, it's usually because of hardware support. And yes. that is like the hardware enablement factor and stuff like that. So Fedora does have that, but it's not rolling technically. But it still has the updates of the Mesa drivers and the kernel drivers and all that stuff. But it doesn't do it as fast as a rolling release would do. So I'm always kind of cautious about rolling releases because do they really need that? But when when it opens Seuss's and Tumbleweed is in the in the conversation, it's super easy to suggest it because I, I've had times where I've done ridiculous experiments where I've waited a year to do updates. Uh, I've done, I've done it in like sequences where I had the same install and for uh, let it go for a few months. I'm like okay, let's give it a little bit more. You let it go for eight months and okay, let's give it a little bit more. And it done over a year and sometimes in an experiment with with Tumbleweed and see if can it do an update without breaking. And the answer is yes, it can, and that's insane. That that should not work for a bleeding mm -hmm. edge rolling release, but <laughs> it does, and that's one of the reasons why I'm such a uh, I'm I'm so amazed by the engineering and the infrastructure that they are able to do because that's that kind of thing should not work, and it does in Tumbleweed. The other awesome thing about the about OpenSUSE though is the community. The community is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like our friend here and DLN creator Cubicle Nate, they're just friendly, passionate, and informative both online and in person. My organization, the Linux Chicks of Los Angeles, often um, help them set up their booth and then they help us. So at the Southern California Linux Expo. And they are just so friendly and kind. You know, they're they're just as much part of my group as we are of the of theirs. That's a really interesting point that I want to dig into a little deeper here. When we think about community, you know, I haven't personally experienced this as much as people make it out to be. But Arch has this kind of reputation, right? That if you ask a question that's already in the wiki, you might get yelled at a little bit, or maybe people mm -hmm. won't be as nice all the time. I think it's a little exaggerated. I think it was worse in the past than it is today. But OpenSUSE community does not seem to have that at all. I, I Nobody even seems to rumor that as being a problem. What is it about the OpenSUSE community as someone who's part of it that kind of encourages that type of behavior from the community? You know, I'm not 100% sure, but that's actually one of the driving reasons. When I when my uh, first distribution that I, I enjoyed, Mandrake, when it went the way the Dodo Bird, if, I guess, <laughs> uh, it I shouldn't say that because there's Open Mandriva and there's Magia, there's, there's the successors. When when Mandriva, the, the company, kind of folded, the I was actually looking. I was kind of a homeless Linux guy and looking for a nice community. And so I I literally I, I joined a bunch of different Linux communities 
and sat there to see how, like in the forums. So, I mean, how, how excited you were that, lurking. Right? Yeah. I was a lurker and I asked questions in each of them and, and whichever community, like in the open source community at that time, even was just super friendly and like they're real helpful. Like, Hey, how do I do this? And they pointed me to a resource. How to do this? They pointed me to another resource, a great community. And I had like some difficult questions. Like, uh, I don't know if you like, ever played with mm-hmm. display link drivers. Well, those are historically not great in Linux. I mean, literally for months, I mean, for like, there's, there's a, the, the forum post is still out there when I was working with Display Link back in 2012. And there were people like really helping me. And they gave me hope though. They said Wayland was just around the corner, which would fix it. This is back in 2012. And I wouldn't have any of the display link issues with multiple. Well, know, that didn't displays. age well. Whoa, whoa. No, Wayland is just around the corner every year. <laughs> <laughs> so. well, it's, yeah, it's, it's an octagon, I guess, of, of corners, <laughs> octagon, right? Octagon, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a dodecagon at this point, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, they were always just super friendly. I would spend time like looking for when there's new posts in, in there, and I would try and help people out as much as I can. But I, I don't have the, the skill levels as a lot of people that do in the open source community to really help out a lot of the more difficult issues. And I, I think that's just kind of the, the community that they foster. And also, you know, they... Uh, you know, things like the wiki, I know not everybody likes wikis, but it's nice that they have at least a place where you can park information... So, you know, how to do something. And then you can, it's very easy to update, like, which distributions of, or, you know, which versions of, of OpenSUSE that it, it works with. They, but it's nice that they have all these things so you can contribute, so you can help out. And, and I think that the, uh, because of that, things like the documentation for OpenSUSE is actually really quite good. I, it's funny, though. I was, look, I came across an issue and I ended up on your blog to fix it because you have a, quite a nice blog out there for, issues and things that you're working on here and there. And I believe it was for the Pipewire was the one I came across. So that that was very helpful as well, because Pipewire works fantastic, by the way, in OpenSUSE. Yeah, I was actually surprised how well it worked. Pulse was giving me problems for the first time on my on this computer. And uh, like the, the Bluetooth was sounded terrible like it yes i've run into that before yep and so i i didn't i couldn't find any solutions on it it, w- it couldn't do like the high fidelity sync or whatever so i thought well got nothing to lose here and so i installed pipewire and it solved all my problems yeah <laughs> by the way that that's an issue i've come across I, I got a brand new pair of headphones and uh i, I think the distro I was using at the time was gruda and i hadn't switched to pipewire in it and put the bluetooth on and it sounded so tinny and horrific through it and then switch to pipe wire and all of a sudden all of the high fidelity and everything kicks in. So anyways, mm-hmm. if somebody comes across an issue with Bluetooth headphones, pipe wire is definitely an easy way to, to fix that problem going in there. So Nate, I guess to close this out here, uh, it seems to be that we agree there are some things that OpenSUSE could do to improve, but ultimately this is a fantastic distro. What do you say to people mm-hmm. who are thinking about trying it out? What's the sales pitch? The reason I like OpenSUSE is because it gives me the freedom to play with the distribution without the negative consequences of breaking it. Because that whole snapper rollback feature, I can break things and, and screw stuff up, you know, maybe install the wrong stuff. And they've given me they've given me an out every time. So I I would say if if you like to mess with your computer, if you like to experiment, if you like to, you know, dig in dig into the weeds on it, but you don't want to uh, blow the whole system up and have to reinstall, uh, OpenSUSE is a great choice for that. Yeah, I've, well, I don't think we even mm-hmm. talked about the rollbacks part of Snapper, but basically just if you're updating your system through Tumbleweed, which is the rolling release thing, it has a, a rollback system built in. So if anything goes wrong, you just reboot into the previous version and you're good to go. I mean, I've had that in my, when usage of OpenSUSE, and I've never even had to use it, but just knowing it's there makes me, makes me more, much more comfortable with just doing anything at random that I was like, you know what, I'm going to mess with this today. 
and then it, it doesn't matter. I have it's broken okay. stuff. I have used the rollback. It does work. <laughs> I'm really happy when yeah. it's there. But you know what? Think yeah. about just for a second, the power that that gives users to be able to say, hey, I'm going to go play and tinker and explore my technology and I don't have to be afraid of it that it's going to blow up in my face. I'm not going to have it anymore and I'm going to have to start all over, right? And there's a certain level exactly. of empowerment that comes with that. No, that's huge. I, I When I did a, my own business, I did a computer tutor business and I often would go to places where there were elderly or other folks who had no exposure to computers and the biggest problem I had to get them over was the fear of breaking it. They didn't want to try new things. They didn't want to explore because they were scared that if they clicked the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, it was going to break it. So my first goal in that business was always to tell them there's nothing you can do to this machine unless you just push the whole machine off the table that I can't fix. <laughs> and even that I can fix. And then you'd <laughs> kind of see this relief come over them like, oh, okay, I can explore. But that you're right on that, Noah, that ability, that freedom to explore and try something and click in that area that you're not sure exactly what it does. And oh, that messed something up. I just roll back is powerful for learning. So the, all these things, it's like if you if you like to play and explore and build and create, uh, make things, to me, OpenSUSE is just like it is the best distribution for people who, who like to do that. So and nice. I'm one of those people. It's for people yeah. who like to mess with computers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, a lot of this advice and things that we talked about while specific to OpenSUSE, a lot of these can be taken and applied to any of the distros we mentioned at the beginning and saying, what are some things that they could do to become more popular? I think having that that community, right, that very strong community of folks who are out there supporting, talking about it, and uh, really advertising some of the unique things that they're doing out there is very important and something I know, Michael, you've been on that soapbox a lot with Linux and open source that we do all these amazing things and nobody's talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's, it's yeah. great. You can develop. It's almost like those businesses where someone's like, I got this really great idea and I'm going to start it by I need a website. Well, how's anyone going to find the website? You may have the greatest website in the world, but if nobody can find it, nobody's going to care. And so you have to have a, a plan, a business plan in place to really get the news out about what you're working on there and then really putting that polish on the things that you're really good at. And then I also think, you know, one of the things we talked about that's really important is that having that specialty again in a desktop environment, mm -hmm. what are you known for doing the best? And I can tell you in playing with all the desktops, I think OpenSUSE's best implementation at this current moment is with their XFCE. I think something like that should be their flagship. They're going to be the best, you know, bring one of those desktop environments in that you're going to really be known for again, like they used to be with KDE would be powerful with them. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. And also about like when you get your, you know, get the word out for you're doing stuff and bragging about the the things that you're doing that are awesome. Uh, you, you're welcome. And this goes to any project, anybody who's a developer for any project, a distro, whether it's that or something else come on the show. We would love to have you on and talk about what you're doing. So uh, just mm -hmm. send us an email, let us know, join the forum, whatever. Any of those things, we'd love to have you. Another thing that I think is awesome is our next sponsor of the show, and that is Bitwarden. This episode is brought to you by Bitwarden, and you can get started right now by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager that is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. 
How does it do that? Well, it provides a ton of different tools like being able to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of that stuff. And it does this all by uh, sealing and encrypting your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices. So you know you're the only person with access to that data. And you can have access across many different types of devices like your web browser extensions, mobile apps, desktop applications, and even on the command line if you want to do that. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And I think you want to check out all of the different services that they have because they have uh, a premium account that starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. That's barely even a premium account. So you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. They also have business accounts, enterprise-level accounts, and family accounts, which is really awesome. I set it up with my family. It makes it a lot easier to uh, help people set up their password manager if they've never used it before and also share passwords back and forth within your family and that sort of stuff. It's just fantastic. Check it out. Bitwarden com slash DLN. Make the smart move like many from the community have and get your account at Bitwarden today. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. Now, there is a device that actually exemplifies our discussion from Destination Linux ep- episode number 235, where we talk about the right to repair. The Framework yes. laptop is officially shipping and it's already selling out of batches. Woohoo! We all want one of these. Yep. And so the Framework work laptop, for those of you not familiar, is a completely repairable and upgradable laptop using modules for swapping in and out and components as needed. It's yeah. so cool. Yeah. And, and it's configurable edition starts as low as 749 in there if you want to build it yourself. And what I like is that the modules for the ports are there as well. So if you want a different layout of USB-C and HDMI or an Ethernet or whatnot, and maybe you're at a job site and that changes. You're like, oh, man, I need mm-hmm. this Ethernet. You literally pop it out and put the Ethernet swap it in and you're done. Like you've got new ports on the side of your laptop there. It's that easy. And then you could swap the entire main board out. The the battery comes out. It's not even glued down. The battery is soldered down. down. Yeah. Yeah. Like you just four screws and poof, it pops out. Your, all of your drives come out. Everything here is upgradable. And unlike a lot of these type of laptops I've seen hit the market, because this isn't the first one where someone's like, Hey, I'm going to do this modular thing. It looks fantastic with the modern yep. looks it's of it. Thin the, and the light. Thinness, yes, ah. it's thin and light. There's not some gigantic bezel going yeah. across the screen. <laughs> it literally looks like you know a, a new Dell or HP or Apple product that that launched there. It has those looks, very high quality. And for all those people who like building stuff themselves, you can get the kit where they ship you all the parts and you just put it all mm-hmm. together on your mm-hmm. own. It's very yeah. cool. I actually, I'm looking forward to doing that because uh, I definitely want one of these. I mean, it might take a little while for me to, you know, pry open my wallet with the crowbar, but I am definitely <laughs> looking forward to playing with this thing because it is, it is so cool. And you mentioned the whole modular thing. I mean, the idea of having the ability to change it out is really cool, but also those cards, the specs and designs and stuff like that to make the cards are open. So people can make their own cards and then put them in the marketplace and then sell them you know, with, with framework. So you, it's, it's not only just, mm-hmm. you know, sustainable in the context of like being able to repair the part, replace parts and make it easier to do all that. It's also the, it can be expanded by the community, which is amazing. And I was impressed with how inexpensive they are. 
They you know range from nine dollars for the USB A and C to nineteen for a micro SD yeah. HDMI or DisplayPort card. Imagine Amazing. if Apple did this, what they would be selling <gasps> that that for. <laughs> yeah. It would be like, oh yeah, we have it. It's modular. It's nine hundred ninety nine dollars for the Ethernet module. No, in they there. already yeah. have modu- <laughs> they already have a modular design. It's called dongles. Everywhere dongles. dongles. Uh (laughs) And they're all like $40 to $50 (laughs) for the official ones. (laughs) But this even doesn't come with a cheap screen. Like so many laptops. Mm -hmm. I'm talking major manufacturers in in very high cost, well above the cost of this machine, putting crap screens in because people don't look at that. They're just like, does it say Intel inside (laughs) Horizon? Cool, I'm going to get it. This has got 2256 by 1504 resolution, 3 by 2 aspect ratio, 100% of the sRGB color gamut. If you don't know what that means, you can check out Hardware Addicts where Wendy completely schools everybody on why that's important and all those things. And more than 400 nit max brightness, which is all very decent. This is a very nice machine and the webcam itself is 1080p, 60 frames per second, which you generally don't see in a laptop, especially <laughs> at this price. You barely yeah. even see 1080p in, in most yeah. laptops, but 1080p 60 is unheard of. And the touchpad is a glass surface. Oh, yeah. No more of this For cheap sure. junk plastic that's, nice. that's that's uh, all, you know, oh man, I, this whole thing is where everybody, this is where the industry needs to be. And they're also thinking about customization. So that bezel, maybe you want an orange bezel, maybe you want a yellow bezel. They're going to sell different colored bezels and things so you can customize it and make it your own. But the e-waste savings on this is insane. I, if I need to upgrade, I, I need a more powerful laptop. The main board is completely hot swappable out, right? You could, well, not hot swappable, but you can pull it out. You can put a new main board in. And you're going to be right back in business with the latest and grace. You don't have to throw away the frame. You don't have to throw away the screen and all of those other things in the drives inside. So it stops e-waste. It helps with repairability. It teaches people about what actually goes into a computer and how it works. I don't have anything negative about this. If yeah. this is as good as they're saying, this could change the whole PC laptop yeah, market. Ecosystem. And, you know, I went through and and did the DIY one where I built my own. And I actually got it down to $780. Can you send me the Jill recommended specs? Because I want a Jill recommended laptop. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's also, you were talking about how it teaches you how to use it. And it's not just because it's put it, you can see how, where the parts go with the DIY, but also because every part has a QR code that you scan and you can, you can get the link to replace it, but also you can get documentation about it and, you know, how to repair it if, if it can be and that sort of stuff. There's, it's it's like you were saying like there's hardly anything you could find that's negative about it and it looks oh they put built in privacy switches like yeah, they, exactly they, I mean they just keep going and going with the they they thought this is if this is ends up being what they're saying this is what it looks like when somebody who loves hardware as much as, as people like us do are actually in charge of designing a laptop this is the type of thing you get out of it yeah this is passion here. So if I, if I can be Debbie Downer for just a second. Well, first, I'll start with the positive. So one of the other things I think is kind of cool, they even custom designed the power adapter, right? And so they yeah. worked to make sure that the power adapter is all made yeah. from, I think it's like 20% of consumer recycled, recycled plastic. And it's designed to be very efficient in those kinds of things. 60 watt, of course, it's charging over type C, yay type C. But so one thing that I, I noticed was lacking on this computer, which was, which, and I get it, there's a licensing thing, there's a cost thing. But the lack of Thunderbolt, you know, and we see that on almost, that's not specific to this computer, right? That's true of almost any non-mainstream manufacturer. But with the advent of Thunderbolt docks and with the proliferation of those Thunderbolt docks and how people are using those in the workplace, I have to believe that at some point that's going to 
uh, carve out a certain amount of the uh, of the market. So it'd really be nice to see uh, maybe down the road. And again, this could be something they could potentially do with one of those modules, right? If they have mm-hmm. access to the PCI bus, hey, down the road, we could have like a, a, a docking module or a Thunderbolt module or something that could be plugged in. No, but I think yeah. that's a that's a very good point. Yeah. But you're right. You're right. That even though it is kind of a Debbie Downer thing, uh, I think it's a good call out, but also something because of the way they've built this that they could fix in the future. So yep. yeah, that's the good thing about this for sure. Yeah. And wouldn't it be cool if we in the future we can get an NVIDIA and AMD discrete GPU module? Yes. That's something <laughs> I, I noticed missing coming. too. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's coming. And then we can can use their onboard Intel Iris XE graphics in, in concert with the discrete and get better battery life. <laughs> and this isn't impossible, by the way, because I have um, Matt from Deal and Extend as well is sending me a laptop. It's an older laptop where he wants me to swap out the modular uh, GPU inside the laptop. Well, back yeah. in the day, you could just pull that card out and put exactly, new ones in, and it Ryan, really wasn't that. that difficult. Yeah, yeah. With a lot and of so, the old gaming computers, my old mm-hmm. ASUS, I was able to put in a new uh, GPU. It's awesome. Yep. There's also something worth noting that the current system is using USB four on the the Intel board. I think so. You should there should be Thunderbolt functionality inside of it because of that. And I think, and because that... If they build a module for it, yeah. I don't know. It's I thought it was USB 4. Man, this is just a, a kind of a tangent, I guess. But I'm pretty sure it's it's based on USB 4. And Thunderbolt is compatible with USB 4. So the stuff you can do in Thunderbolt is in USB 4 because Intel donated it to the USB forum thing. Correct. It is. It says the default card supporting USB 4. So yeah, it is that, that oh, it is so there. The, there you go. So, so, okay, fine. So let me add this then. Let me, let me twist. Let me pivot. They advertise windows on their site, right? But if you look through their, uh, their community forms, they've actually done testing with Fedora 34 on the frameworks laptop. So it turns out this device that will (laughs) ship with the ability to dock over Thunderbolt dock will work on Fedora 34 minus the fingerprint, which they give you documentation (laughs) on how to fix. Well, there's actually something also that was uh, a patron in the post in the the patron chat. uh, Neil pointed out to us that there was a quote from the, the founder of framework. uh, Nirav Patel says that Fedora is definitely the best supported distro on the framework laptop. Ah, So they're even outright saying it specifically. So if you want to have a great experience, (laughs) check it out. Getting those great <laughs> hardware partnerships. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be ordering me a framework laptop. I mean, mm-hmm. how could I not? Right. So. <laughs> Along with our Steam decks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Just don't, nobody tell my wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You talked about how it looks good and looks modern. There was a video I saw recently talking about like comparing an Ultrabook from other companies to this. And their their whole reason to make it glued so they can have it thinner, super thin, and all this other stuff. And a lot of the cases, the framework laptop was thinner. (laughs) And lighter. Nice. So when you get your new framework laptop, you may want to do some gaming on it. And of course, until they get the integrated graphics options in there, you might have to do some light gaming. But the good news is Valve has started doing a bunch of work in their beta this week in preparation, I think, for the Steam Deck coming up and things that are going to make Steam much faster at its launch, improve dialogue so it's less kind of noisy and talking to you and prompting and things like that. Uh, Library pinning process is significantly faster. They're restoring compatibility with NixOS, which I thought was interesting. Make users share NVIDIA available to container using the NVIDIA proprietary drivers, so improvements there. They've added detection for the HTC uh, Vive Pro 2 and prompt to install the driver when you plug it in automatically further reduced CPU usage. So it's a lot smaller in there. 
They've added support for uh, new controllers in there, including the kind of off-brand Power A Xbox. I don't even know if they're off-brand anymore. They're just not the official brand for Xbox. New download pages, Linux container runtime updates for both Scout and Soldier. They're doing a ton of work. And I feel like when I look at these updates and things that they're doing, this is in prep for Steam Deck. That's yeah. what I feel. Oh, like yeah, for right. sure. It's It's got to be. And this kind of stuff is just really nice, especially since I think they're getting rid of the big picture mode and replacing it with a new interface to in order for the Steam Deck to use yeah. that instead. And I think that's great because I wasn't really a fan of the big picture mode. I never used yeah. it. Yeah. The new beta version has lo- like the looks of it, the download thing, the the way you can do the organization of different st- storage folders and having different folders where your games are stored. Like there's a lot of cool stuff in this one. Yeah. Lots, lots of not just big things under the hood, but lots of little paper cuts. Like for instance, it loads faster now. The that's Steam important. Beta is yep. uh, much better, and I love how it, you know it's it's more streamlined looking. And in the uh, download section, you can actually drag and drop uh, your downloads for queue. So it, that instead of using the old uh, arrows to go up and down. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so just little things like that really enhance the overall experience. So I know we we've, we're not really talking about Steam Deck necessarily for this episode, but we got Nate on here, so I got to ask: Did you get a Steam Deck? Yeah, I went go big or go home. So that's, that was my nice. You have to; it's, it's almost obligatory. You have to talk about the Steam Deck at this point. Yeah. So besides, like the the gaming functionality of it, like it is just a neat piece of hardware. Like I mean, I I yeah, exactly I was I was actually very close to buying like a second Switch to put Linux on it, just because I wanted to like go through the process of just you know. What can I cram on this on this thing? And now I don't have to do that. I've just saved myself a lot of time. Sure, it costs me a, a few a few nickels, but I'm going to really enjoy this. It's it's like a device. It's like a, a computery thing I can take outside of me and not feel bad about. Like you know, like this all this this you know this HP Elite book. It's it's a nice machine to take out and and you know and do you know fun things with a computer. But there's this fear that if I break this, I'm I'm really in a bad spot. You know, you know we have that. But to take that Steam Deck yeah. out, which is actually designed to be taken out and used and played, and probably has some drop testing if it, it based on my understanding of, of of how they design consoles, I know it can. It's more likely to be able to sustain it than than a, a laptop. When you're on vacation and you pull up a laptop and you open it up and you start working on it, my wife would come in the room like, "No, this is a vacation. Put it away." But Steam Deck, yeah, I could get away with that. I'm like, no, I want to just game. This is my relaxation. It's going to be the ultimate ultra-portable machine. Yeah, it will be. Yeah. So in our spotlight this week, I want to talk about something that I think is also underrated, and that is the Fedora Media Writer. It's a tool used to make a bootable USB drives for Linux distros. Now, this is made for Fedora by Fedora, but it works for any distro whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You simply select the ISO you want, and you're good to go. Now, this is the spotlight for this week because of the underrated aspects. I think that it's it's probably the best tool for this this job. So the Fedora Media Writer has been my go-to for a while because of how reliable it is and how easy to use it is. And what makes this Media Writer so underrated? Well, the process is just very simple to use. It guides you through the entire process without presenting any weird esoteric options. I've used many of these types of tools in the past and this is this one just seems to eliminate all the headaches that you might find with this kind of thing. I mean, for example, if you plug in a drive that already has data on it, then it will detect that it has something in it and pop up a message letting you know that there is data and ask you, do you want to format the drive? Now, this wor- works as a, like a warning, as a reminder to you know back up the data on the drive if you need it. But also, if you already pr- are prepared for wiping it, you can just 
click continue in the Fedora Media Writer and it will automatically prepare the drive to have whatever ISO you want it to be. So you don't have to format it first. It just goes through the process itself. Plus, it's also available as a flat pack. So it's very easily accessible regardless of which distro you're using and whatever. And But if that wasn't enough, it also works great on Windows and Mac. That's right. You can use Fedora Media Writer to create bootable USB drives on any distro and Windows or Mac. And I've seen people talk about Rufus and Etcher and all that stuff in tutorials and videos on many occasions, but I've had bad experiences with both. Same here. Rufus and Mm -hmm. Etcher, they used to be good at one point and then they kind of stopped being reliable and all that sort of stuff. But every time I've used the Fedora Media Writer, it's been solid every single time. And I think it should be the go-to suggestion for people making bootable USBs on Windows for sure. It's also written in Qt, so that's nice. Oh, that's why you brought <laughs> it on here. Well, okay. I mean, I do like you, but it's, it's also written that. That's, that's, a, that's, a, really that's a side note, but you know, it's, that is nice. Uh, and if you'd like to check out the Fedora Media Writer for yourself or try out Fedora and, or OpenSUSE on it, you can find links to it in the show notes. We're going to talk a little bit about running commands in the background. So sometimes you might be working on a process either on your local computer and uh, if for whatever reason you need to suck it up into the background. You don't want it to just sit there running your terminal. So an example of how I use that on a daily basis is currently Element Desktop doesn't have support for multiple profiles. And so I want to launch, let's say, my community account. So I might do element dash dash top tac tac profile space community. The problem is I have to leave that terminal window running in order for element to stay running. If I close the terminal window, element would shut down. And so I can use the ampersand will actually suck that process up into the background. Then I can close the terminal window and continue on. Element will continue running. But let's say you've SSH'd into a server and you've started a process and you want that process to continue. Now you could put the ampersand and it will suck it up in the background, give you your command prompt back. What you'll notice is when you disconnect by default, the process that's associated with that user is going to be terminated at the time you disconnect. And so again, your process is shut down. So that's not really preferable. So if you add the no hop command or no hangup, N-O-H-U-P command, after the and, and then put the ampersand to suck it up in the background, after that, at, at which point when you disconnect from that SSH session, that command is going to stay running. But wait, there's more. Let's say you have a command that's running and you may need to come back to it. So for example, you're copying a large file. You're copying a, a 60 gigabyte file and you're, you're ready to leave the office and you've got to get home for dinner. And so you want to disconnect from that process. You want to leave the process running. But when you get home, you're going to want to be able to log back in and recall that process and see where it's at. Well, for that, you can use a tool like Screen. Screen will allow you to launch essentially a virtual terminal session. And you can start your command, uh, start whatever process you want to start, and then use the, the, the keyboard sequence Control-A-D, Control-A and then Control-D, and that will disconnect you from that screen session. When you get home or to your next location, you can log back in and do screen tack R, and it will resume your screen session. Additionally, you can have multiple screen sessions going, and they'll each be identified by a screen session ID And you can just specify that session ID to recall one screen session or the other. If you'd like additional tips and tricks, we invite you to stay tuned to future editions of the tips and tricks section on Destination Linux or go back for previous episodes and get yourself up to date. Everything from containers to stuff like this. And before we close out the show, I want to tell you about some events that you can mark your calendar for. We talked about the awesome communities out there in OpenSUSE and they have the OpenSUSE Asia Summit that is occurring here August 6th through the 8th. So now is your time to go in there, check your calendar, block some of that time off and go see some of the amazing 
um, material that's going to be covered in that conference there. Also, we love the Fedora community, and they have Nest with Fedora that's taking place August 5th through the 7th. Nest with Fedora is the virtual version of the Fedora's Project Annual Contributor Conference, Flock to Fedora. Three days of content, workshops, games, and socializing with your fellow Fedorians. And we're going to be there off and on too. A lot of these hosts can pop in and out of this conference. And I hear Michael might even be included in one of the panels. Yeah, in this. fact, yeah. I will be joining the Fedora podcast talk about Fedora podcast and their partnership with DLN and all that sort of stuff. So I will be there on Friday. So if you want to see Michael get all nervous and kind of make some mistakes on a live conference stage, I mean, do a perfect presentation, uh, go check that out. I don't get nervous. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I'm just gonna. It's gonna be solid. It'll be one take and no problem. Blah blah just, blah blah. Just blah, blah, blah. just <laughs> like this particular episode of this show, I did not make any mistakes whatsoever. You don't need to watch the the unedited version. That's not necessary. It it just perfect the whole time. Well, if you do want to see the unedited version of the show <laughs> to see if Michael made any mistakes during this episode, you can become a patron like all these beautiful faces here with us now. And you get perks like that. You get unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events, live recordings of Destination Linux every Sunday. We get to hang out in our uh, 650,000 square foot virtual stadium in there. We have virtual vending machines and virtual food booths and virtual everything. Virtual Anything food you trucks can imagine, in the virtual parking lot, for sure. Yes. <laughs> in addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at DLNlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. Also, be sure to check out Destination Linux store by going to dealinstore.com. You can pick up some swag like t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, backpacks, and aprons so you can twill while you grill and so much great stuff at the Destination Linux Network store, dealinstore.com. And make sure to check out all our amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, DLN Extend with Nathan our friend here, here Nate. <laughs> Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and get your Fedora hat on with our latest show, the Fedora Podcast. So all you have to do is go to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Bye-bye. See you next week. See us. Look who's joining. Who's joining? <gasps> Zeb! 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 Yay! Yay, Zeb! Can you hear us? I can hear you. How you diddly? Oh, So it's really good to see all of you people. I'm tearing up here. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. I miss you, Zeb. What have you been up to, man? What kind of trouble you been getting into?